you will, turn in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans as we continue our study through the Word. Now, you'll remember as we're looking and working our way through the book of Romans that in the first eight chapters, we saw Paul take and, and break down the new covenant for us and the understanding that we have been saved by grace and through faith and, and that not of ourselves. And, and so the old covenant has now been replaced with the new covenant and those first eight chapters really breaks that down for us. In chapter 9, if the old covenant has now been replaced by the new covenant, then where does that leave the nation of Israel? And that was really the topic of chapter 9, 10, and 11, the nation of Israel. Now, the ninth chapter, we saw that that dealt with the way that God has dealt with the nation of Israel in the past. And it was the sovereignty of God and the way that God sovereignly chose Abraham, sovereignly and chose and Jacob over Esau, the sovereignty of God in the selection and the use of the nation of Israel. God had picked one people group and birthed the nation through Abraham to bring the Messiah, the Savior of the world, into the world. And so that was God's sovereign choice. Now, in the 10th chapter, we saw that though God now has dealt with them in the past sovereignly, and now he is going to use the church as the witness to the world in times past underneath the old covenant God used the nation of Israel to be his witness here upon the earth but when the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah then God set the nation of Israel aside to use them and so he is using the church but he didn't cut them off he didn't seal them from entering into the new covenant each and every single Jew is able to receive Jesus uh, as their Messiah on a personal, on an individual basis. And so uh, that is where God is working even to this day. Sovereignly in the past, open arms to them to this day. What about the future? Does God have a plan for using the nation of Israel uh, again in the future? And what about all of the promises that God has made to the nation of uh, Israel? And so chapter 11 is going to talk about the future promises that have been made in the Old Covenant uh, and in the Old Testament. And what about those promises to God? Let's take a look now as Paul works uh, through that issue uh, here in this uh, 11th chapter we begin I say then has God cast away his people certainly not for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin and so has God, though he has set them aside to use them as a nation, uh, has he cast them off? Or uh, are there going to be believing Jews? Is there going to be a remnant uh, of God's um, people, of the Jews, that are going to accept Jesus uh, as the Messiah? And Paul here points to the fact that uh, he himself is a Jew, that he has accepted Jesus uh, as the Messiah. So salvation hasn't come just to the Gentiles with the exclusion uh, of the Jews, but we see that the Jews also uh, 
have salvation in Christ Jesus. But there are many people who teach that God is finished with Israel, with the nation of Israel, that God has cast them off. And, and so what do they make of all of the promises that are yet unfulfilled to the nation of Israel? Now, it's what's known as replacement theology. Theologians looked at the fact that that Israel didn't exist as a nation. 2,000 years, there is no nation of Israel. And so they began to look at the scriptures and the promises to the nation of Israel. And they said, you know what? The church, the, the church must be the spiritual Israel, not a physical Israel, but what if the Israel is really just the spiritual Israel of the, uh, of the faithful, of the seed of Abraham? And so they began to, to look at placing the church in the place of a, a spiritual Israel. This is what's known as replacement theology. They replace the nation of Israel uh, with uh, the church. But then in 1948, uh, the nation of Israel was regathered back together uh, uh, again, uh, and the nation now exists uh, to this day. And, and so replacement theology really was, I believe, an attempt to help God out, you know, with the uh, the Old Testament and the promises that had been uh, made. And we see also that another place where you will find replacement theology is in people who hold to a post-tribulation position. Now, there's the tribulation, and when is the Lord going to return? You have those that believe in the pre-tribulation, that the Lord is going to take the church, the rapture of the church is going to take place before the tribulation begins. There are some who believe in a mid-tribulation. There are those who believe in a post-tribulation. Now, the post-tribulation, we see that they believe that the church is going to go through the tribulation and then the, uh, the Lord's return, the rapture of the church is going to take place uh, after the tribulation is uh, over. But we believe in a pre-tribulation position. And, and when you have the, the church going through the tribulation, really what happens is that the nation of Israel goes through the tribulation. And so once again, they are confusing the church with Israel. And so they put the church going through the tribulation. That's another replacement in theology. And so Paul here is saying that, you know, what about the nation of Israel and the promises to the nation of Israel? Have they been cast off? Are they cast away? And he says, certainly not. A absolutely uh, not. Uh, we see in verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or did you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads uh, with God against the Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and, and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response uh, say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So has God cast away his people? We see that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And when the Lord returns and establishes his millennial reign, he, he will return and he will rule from Jerusalem. He will sit upon the seat of David. We see that once the church is gone, then the witness
witness of God, God is always going to keep a witness here upon the face of the earth. Now, the church, the believers and go, uh, but then who is going to pick up the witness now uh, of Jesus uh, as the Messiah and God? And we see that in the book of Revelation, it talks about how the Spirit of God is going to come upon the 144,000 Jews who are now going to become the evangelists here. They are much the way that you remember Paul has a, a supernatural revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. You remember how he's on the road to Damascus and he is in opposition to Christians seeking to arrest them and then he encounters the risen Lord and becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, after the rapture of the church, the, there is going to be 144,000 that now suddenly also like Paul Paul, uh, are going to recognize and understand that Jesus is the Messiah and, and they will be the, uh, the evangelists uh, here upon the face of the earth during the tribulation period. And so God is not done. God will always keep a remnant. And, and as Paul is talking about how God keeps a remnant, he brings them back to their history, brings them back to Elijah. Now, you remember how the kingdom had divided into the northern ten tribes and the two southern tribes. And those ten tribes, Israel, had a wicked king. His name was Ahab. He was married to this really nice gal named Jezebel. And Jezebel was this wicked, wicked queen. And, and you remember how God had said that, uh, that they were not to enter into idolatry and not to worship uh, the gods that had been in the land before he he brings them in that he is the true and the living God and you are to worship no other God whatsoever and uh, but the the northern ten tribes they began to get heavily involved in idolatry and, and Ahab and Jezebel especially and and Elijah was a prophet there in the northern ten tribe area region of the nation and the wickedness that was in the land and and so God then sends a, a famine upon the uh, the nation he sends a drought refuses to allow the rains to bring forth their rain and uh, judgment against them and and finally god then sends uh, elijah to uh, ahab and and he says to Ahab, you know, Ahab sees him, he says, oh, you troubler of Israel to Elijah. And Elijah says, you're the one that has brought the trouble to the nation of Israel through your uh, idolatry. He says, I want you to assemble all of the people on Mount Carmel. And I want you to bring all of the prophets of Baal. Uh, and we will determine who uh, is God. And you remember how there in Mount Carmel, he says, take two bulls now. You prepare a bull and I will prepare a bull. And we will take the sacrifice, we'll lay it on wood, and we will call upon God to bring fire down and to consume the sacrifice. And whoever calls fire down from heaven, that is the true God. And, and so Elijah has only himself, and there are the 450 prophets of Baal. He says, you have more manpower, you go first, you can get your, your, your wood charred 
stopped and you can get your sacrifice set up quicker. So, so you go first. So they take and they sacrifice the bull. They get it ready and then they start calling on Baal to, to ignite a fire there and to consume the sacrifice. And, and they are crying out all through the morning. And at noontime now, uh, Elijah starts to mock them a, a little bit. And, uh, and he says, you know, maybe your God is sleeping and you need to yell a little louder. And he says, maybe your God is busy, you know, and, and so you need to interrupt. Or maybe he's gone on a trip uh, and he's not there. And so he, he mocks them and, and they continue to cry out. They cry out all the way to the time of the evening sacrifices. And by that time now, Elijah is, uh, is ready and he sacrifices his bull and puts it onto the altar he's built into the wood that is there. But he tells the Israelites, go down to the spring uh, and now I want you to come and get water and I want you to drench the sacrifice with water, drench the wood uh, with fire, uh, with water as well. And, uh, and then he has them do it a second time and then he has them do it a third time. And then he goes, God, Show yourself mighty. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes not just the sacrifice, consumes the wood and the rocks and the altar and even the dust and just uh, this magnificent display of just the, the presence of God. And Elijah then mm, says to the Israelites, don't let one of these prophets here uh, escape. And so they executed the false prophets, 450 of them. Ahab goes and tells Jezebel what has happened and how Elijah has executed 450 of their prophets. And Jezebel says, puts a word out that if you live another day, I'm going to do to you what you did to those prophets. And so she is going to come after Elijah. Elijah prays, the, the rain clouds come and uh, the drought ends, but now Elijah's afraid for uh, his own life. And, and so he departs. He heads to Judah uh, out of the territory where Ahab is king, to the southern kingdom. And, and then from there out to the wilderness. And he's basically hiding in the, in the wilderness. And, and that was when God appears to him and says, Elijah, what are you, what are you doing? Why, why are you running? And Elijah says, you know, that they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. And so Elijah is thinking that he's the only faithful prophet now that God has in all the land. And God says to him, he says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to, to Baal. He says, you're not the only faithful man. I have a, I have a remnant. I have 7,000 that have never bowed the knee. And, and so here we see that, that Paul is reminding them in their own history that God always keeps a remnant that God has a, a remnant and, and that God is not done uh, with the nation of Israel. He says, verse five, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of uh, grace. There is a remnant of surviving Jews that have accepted Jesus Christ uh, uh, 
as uh, the Messiah. Now, the nation was set aside and the religious leaders didn't receive Christ, but the early church there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost was made up of Jews. When 3,000 people gave their heart on the day of Pentecost, those were the Jews that were there in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. And so there is a remnant. The nation didn't receive Jesus, but there is a remnant uh, that has and in verse 6 and if by grace then it is no longer of works otherwise grace is no longer grace but if it is of works it is no longer grace otherwise work is no longer work and so Paul says that this remnant uh, how are they saved they're saved by grace they have put their faith in Christ and so the Jews and the Gentiles uh, are saved by putting their faith in Christ he says what then Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. And to this very day, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 29, and the stupor is a kind of numbness that results in, in blindness, eyes that could not see, and, and deafness, ears that could not hear. When a person repeatedly refuses to listen to God and to listen to the good news of the gospel, when you continually reject it and you harden your heart, you eventually get to the place where you're unable to hear it and you're unable to uh, understand it. And, and Paul here takes this and says, and to this very day, uh, God has not changed. And it is interesting that there is a believing minority in Israel today, but it is a minority. The, the Messianic Jews, the Jews that have accepted Jesus as the Messiah are a minority, but there is a blinded majority that is in Israel. It always, I'm always marveled when we go to Israel. And, and most of the times we have a, a Jewish guide that is with us and most of the time Time, they are non-believing and and what is interesting to me is, is that as we go to the various different sites and and they will give the history of the sites and and they're filled with knowledge yet their knowledge has not led them to uh, openness uh, of the truth uh, that is right before them what's even more interesting is then they will hear me open up the word of God and to teach and to illuminate the truth that is there and yet they stay in their state of uh, unbelief and so to this very day they have eyes and ears but they cannot see and they cannot hear verse 9 and David says let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a recompense to them let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back uh, always. We uh, see here that verses 9 and 10 come from Psalm 69, and Psalm 69 is uh, a prophetic and suffering Messiah uh, psalm. And, and so he says, let their table become a snare and a trap. The table that he's referring to is the, the blessing uh, of, the, of the prosperity that God has given to them. You'll remember that when he brought them into Israel, he told them, I'm going to bring you into a land that flows with uh, 
milk and honey and and that he will bless them and so uh, they came into the land and god blessed that land but that blessing rather than uh, bringing them to a place of gratitude and humility before god that that blessing of prosperity brought them to a place of pride and in their pride that led them away from god not into god and so not only were they puffed up of pride but then they missed the messiah uh, when the messiah came and uh, and so instead they persecuted and and killed him and so god says that if you don't want to see me you won't God is not going to force himself uh, upon anybody. But for anybody who will seek after him with an open heart, they will find him. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it, it will be opened. And... And so, Israel's rejection, they have been set aside uh, as a nation, uh, consequence to the rejection of uh, Jesus as the uh, Messiah. Uh, but is God done with them? In verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And that fall means falling to a place where they are no longer able to ever stand back uh, up again. And Paul's answer, certainly not. This is the 10th time in Romans that Paul has asked a question and then the answer was absolutely not or certainly not. He says, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Uh, and so God has provoked his people <laughs> through jealousy by blessing uh, the Gentiles and uh, Israel lost sight of the reason for their election as a nation and God had told Abraham and in you all the families uh, of the earth uh, shall be blessed and so God had exalted them and blessed them because through them the Messiah was going to come and uh, and so verse 12 now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles how much more their fullness and so the world has been enriched spiritually because so many gentiles now have come to christ but even greater riches will be enjoyed after the conversion of of israel at the lord's return how glorious the the world is going to be when christ returns that is in his second coming and then the nation of Israel, Christ is going to set up his government there in Jerusalem. The nation of Israel will be the seat uh, of his government. He will sit upon the throne of David and he will rule in righteousness and his reign will never end. We will enter into that glorious uh, millennial reign after the tribulation uh, when the lion is going to lie down with the lamb and when peace is going to be upon the, uh, the world. And, uh, and so that glorious uh, millennial reign of Christ, how much more will the earth be blessed uh, when the Jews now uh, have received Jesus uh, as their Messiah and both the Gentiles uh, and the Jews uh, will be worshiping him. Verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles 
Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. And Paul affirmed his special calling as an uh, apostle to the Gentiles. And, and we see that Paul declares that, that he is, a, though a Jew, he is an apostle to the Gentiles. And, and by magnifying his calling, calling we see that he says that he seeks to provoke to jealousy his fellow Jews remember that whenever Paul would go into a, a new city he would always start in the synagogues first to so the Jews first uh, and then to the Gentiles uh, salvation uh, has uh, come he says in verse 15 for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world what will their acceptance be but life uh, from uh, the dead? And so mm. here we see that uh, that the life is going to come uh, from the dead. The nation of Israel was uh, was dead. But we see that in Ezekiel chapter 37, there is an amazing prophecy the, the dead bones uh, prophecy when God says that he is going to pull the bones um, back together again that he is going to knit them together and then put in flesh upon them and breathe life into them and uh, and he is going to resurrect the nation uh, of uh, Israel and uh, amazing that we saw that happen on May 14, 1948, when the nation of Israel was declared a nation. Never in the history of the world uh, has a nation that has been scattered and lost uh, ever been regathered back uh, into its uh, homeland uh, uh, once again. But we see in fulfillment that God took from the dead and now uh, has made it alive. We saw the physical fulfillment take place in 1948, but the spirit spiritual fulfillment of that that will take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ he says for if the first fruit is holy the lump is also holy now back in numbers uh, Moses taught that when you brought your harvest in you were to take the first fruit of the harvest and you were to uh, offer it unto the Lord that was the the first uh, fruit and so uh, he says if the first fruit is holy the the lump uh, also is uh, holy and and here we see that he is applying this now to the uh, the very first fruits of the church were Jews uh, and so uh, verse 16 and if the root is holy so are the branches and if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, he's talking to the Gentiles now. He says, if you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. He says that, uh, that the Gentiles have been grafted uh, in now to the root of the promises uh, of God. Who, who is the root? Where are the, the roots? The roots are the patriarchs. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, they were the uh, root of the blessing, the promises of, uh, of God. And, and we see now that we and the Gentiles have been grafted into it. He says, but don't get puffed up with, uh, with pride. 
He says that you have been grafted into the, the roots. And you will say then, verse 19, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. But do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. We see that God didn't tear down the entire tree, but some of the branches were broken off because of sin and uh, unbelief. And these branches are the Jews who failed to respond in faith to God's mercy and to the invitation of the new covenant. And in their place, Gentile believers now likened to a wild olive shoot that has been grafted in. And so... If God didn't spare the natural branches, in other words, he says, don't get puffed up with pride. He says, because in pride they were led astray. And if you get puffed up with pride, he says, you know, uh, that you being grafted in, know that God is just and righteous. He says in verse 22, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity but toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness otherwise you also will be cut off and so uh, here again uh, we see that uh, God is going to judge. If we get puffed up with pride, we depart. We're no longer uh, in grace. He says, then you are going to experience the severity of God uh, as well. He says in verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again and so if a Jew uh, now puts their faith in Jesus they they will be grafted in as well and so they have been cut off as a nation no longer do they have special status as a people group, but as an individual. Now, if they put their faith in Jesus, they will be grafted in. He says in verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And so uh, the Jew that doesn't believe they are of the olive tree they are of the the physical seed of Abraham and so they their stock their DNA is the cultivated olive tree how much easier is it to graft uh, them in and so uh, here we see that uh, the Jewish branches uh, attach just with Gentile branches grafted in and so both of them now grafted in and so here when is this all going to uh, happen? We see that God is sovereign over the timing of these things. And, and Paul addresses that here in verse 25. Who do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant uh, of this mystery, lest uh, you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And so the fullness of the Gentiles, what, what does that term mean? It means that when the church now, when everybody gets saved, that is going to be saved during the church age, that is the, the time that is known as the fullness of the Gentiles. The church age is known uh, as the fullness of the Gentiles. And so when that last person accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, then we are going to see the Lord return. The, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus uh, we shall always be with the Lord. And, uh, and so there is going to be the return of the Lord, for the rapture of the church. And, and I want you to know that prophetically there is nothing else that needs to happen in order for the rapture of the church to take place. We see that the world is prepped and primed for a, a, a one world leader. We see the nations are aligned. The nation of Israel is back in its land. We see that the, the technology has gotten to the point where you can monitor people and set up a, a system throughout uh, the entire world. We're traveling to and fro across the, uh, the nation and across the world. Everything prophetically is in place uh, right now. And, and it says that there's going to come a moment when the last person is going to get and saved, they're going to accept Christ and then kapow, the Lord is going to return. I wish we knew who that last person was. We could go find them right now and get them saved. And, but we are going to then see the, the Lord's return and how absolutely glorious that is going to be. It says in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. Is God done with the nation of Israel? No. He says when that happens after the, the rapture of the church takes place, that now suddenly the nation of Israel is going to figure it out. They're going to recognize that, uh, that Jesus uh, is the Messiah. It says, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so uh, all Israel is going to be saved when God turns away the ungodliness from Jacob. What is the ungodliness uh, from Jacob? That is their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. That is their uh, ungodliness. So we see here in this chapter that Paul begins by talking about the fact that he's uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a remnant of one. Uh, then he talked about the 7,000 uh, uh, that were saved in Elijah's day. And now he talks about uh, all of Israel that is going to be saved. And in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced, 
Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a, a firstborn. The Spirit of God is going to fall upon them and they are going to have an awareness that, that Jesus is the Messiah. And that awareness, I just want you to imagine if you, if you were a Jew living in, in the nation of Israel and, and suddenly you're waiting. Right now, the Jews, they're waiting for their Messiah. They, they are to this day looking forward to the hope of Israel, which is the, uh, the Messiah. And, the, and they are waiting for him. And, and suddenly for them to come to that point where we're not waiting for him. He's come. And we missed him. That recognition that, that they rejected him, that they missed him when he didn't come is going to fall upon him. And, and it says, and, and they are going to mourn. They will look on me whom they pierced. And yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Concerning the gospel, there are enemies for your sake. In other words, the Jews today reject uh, the, uh, the gospel. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And so uh, we see the election of the nation of uh, Israel. They have not been cut off uh, from the future dealing of God. In verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And so God made his promises. He made his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And those promises, they, they are irrevocable. God's promises are irrevocable. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We see in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord. I change not. In Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should uh, repent. And so God made his promises to the nation. God will keep his promises unto the nation for the gifts and the calling of God are uh, irrevocable. For as you were once, verse 30, disobedient to God, you have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. And even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. And so, uh, when the Gentiles rejected God and, and disobeyed uh, him, we see that God chose Abraham and made his own nation uh, from them. But when that nation <laughs> rejected uh, uh, the God and the promises of God, uh, we see that he set them uh, aside again uh, in verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience. So the Gentiles have been disobedient and the Jews have been disobedient. He says that he might have mercy on all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past uh, finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? As Paul thought about this incredible plan of salvation, how before Adam and Eve ever fell, this plan of salvation was in place and, and how God was going to send the Redeemer and he was going to pick a people group and, and we would be saved by faith and, and 
And that would just be the grace of God, unmerited, unwarranted in favor, a demonstration of God's great love to each and every one of us. Paul's like, who could have come up with such a plan? Who Did anybody help God with that plan? Did, uh, did God see counselors on this? He says, how unsearchable is this incredible plan uh, of uh, God? Or uh, who has first given to him and, and it should be repaid to him? And, uh, and so we see here that God is the one who is sovereign over all things. And, and he closes with this doxology for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and all God's people said amen and so the all sovereign God deserves uh, the praise uh, of all uh, his creatures as we close our study here I want to draw our attention for just a moment to uh, verse 33 where where Paul now, as he just steps back and, and he looks at the incredible plan of salvation, he looks at the, the nation of Israel set aside, but uh, they are going to once again be used as an instrument uh, of God. They have their place in the end times. And, and we see that, uh, that Paul just marvels at the goodness and the grace of God. Our salvation, the way in which each and every one of uh, us, we, we were stuck in our sin, we were separated from the love of God, and, and God in, in his mercy and his grace, he rescued each and every one of us. We, we put our faith in Christ and, and we received the righteousness of Christ that we never deserved and, and we could never earn it, but God just gave it to us, the, the goodness of God. And, and he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And it was the wisdom and, and the knowledge and, and how these are the, the riches of God. How God now loves us and, and God has poured out both wisdom to us and also has poured out the knowledge of himself and that these are the true riches in this life. It is the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. We see in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We see that the, the book of Proverbs, it says to seek after wisdom in, in your life, to, uh, to, to seek that more than gold or silver, to, uh, to when you find them, hold on to it and, uh, and to count them near and dear to yourself, the, the riches of, of wisdom. And, and God has given to us, he, he created, you he breathed life into you and brought you forth and and then he gave you free will and he says that you get to navigate you get to make your own decisions i'm not going to force you into to any decisions whatsoever you're going to make your own decisions he made us a free moral agent but then he says but i do want to give to you wisdom 
I want you to be able to know the things that you should avoid in this world, the decisions that you make that will bring blessing into your life, the, the decisions that you make that will bring judgment and difficulty and hardship into your life. And he poured out this book. In Proverbs, he poured out a whole book just on wisdom. He, this is the book of Proverbs. I was thinking about this. This is the greatest collection of life hacks that you will ever find uh, anywhere uh, and you can go and, and try and find your own life hacks you can look for um, people that will post them on the uh, internet and in social media groups and and you can listen to what other people say or you can listen to God's life hacks uh, and then you decide uh, which ones that you are going to follow uh, in your life and, and what you are going to do. The incredible thing is that the quality of our life, listen, the quality of our life is going to be determined uh, by the wisdom that we have in uh, our life. And the wisdom now, you can even learn it through trial and error. They, they say that, that, you know, that, that life is the best teacher, you know, making mistakes is the best teacher if you can afford the cost of tuition <laughs> because it's an expensive way uh, to learn truth is, is through trial and error. But, um, but God has given it to us and, and the richness uh, of the truth of the uh, word of God, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning it's the first step uh, of wisdom and and what does that mean the fear of the Lord and the fear of the Lord means when you're concerned with what God thinks about something now uh, we're concerned with what others are going to think about this decision or that decision in life I wonder what my family's going to say or if they're going to accept that they're going to be supportive we're uh, we're concerned with what uh, our peers think and, and all but it says that the beginning of wisdom is when you care what God thinks more than anybody else and thinks that that's the first step of wisdom in your life. What does God think about this? And, and so the riches of the fact that God has revealed what he thinks, you don't have to guess what God thinks. He's already told you exactly what he thinks. And guess what? He never changes his mind. He's never going to get to a place where, yeah, I know I said that before, but this is how I feel now. God never does that. And so he has declared. So Paul here is talking about the, the incredible riches that we have in the wisdom of God so that we can navigate our life. And then he says the riches not only of that, not only has God poured out his wisdom for us to be able to navigate our, our life by, but he says he's also revealed himself to us. You see, how can we know God unless God reveals himself to us? We, we can't climb up into heaven. We can't show up at his house and hang out with him. God has to reveal himself to us, and, and God has through the, the scriptures. The scriptures are the revelation of God himself. And, and so Paul just stops and he says, do you realize what we have here? Do you realize the blessing, the riches that we have, the wisdom that God has given to himself, and then the knowledge of himself? The revelation of himself. You see, Christianity isn't about rules and regulations. It's about a relationship. And God has revealed his heart towards you. 
and towards me here in the scriptures. He's giving you the counsel of how to navigate this life and he has given you his heart, the revelation of who he is. And he has given us this invitation in the new covenant into a personal, deep, abiding relationship. And Paul just says, how wonderful, how marvelous. It is too wonderful to even be able to comprehend the richness and the goodness of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. We, we couldn't discover it, but we didn't have to. His ways are past finding out, but he has given them to us. We are blessed. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation, the wisdom, and the knowledge of you. How sweet and precious it is. And so, God, may we walk in that wisdom. Lord, may we seek after your face. May we ask and knock. And, and Lord, may it be opened and given to us. And so, Father, we love you. Thank you. Thank you. Our love for you is just a response to your love for us. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.